Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Dustin Higgs died by lethal injection at 1.23 a.m. local time this past Saturday at the Federal Corrections Institute in Terre Haute, Indiana. He was the 13th and final federal execution of the Trump administration just days before the president left office. Higgs was infected with COVID-19 at the time of the execution. His petition for a stay of execution was granted by the federal district court, and for a moment, there was hope. He raised critical questions in his petition. He argued that COVID-19 caused him significant lung damage and that, as a result, executing him by injection of pentobarbital will, quote, subject him to a sensation of drowning akin to waterboarding, unquote. He also argued that it is now too late for the federal government to obtain an order changing the state law designated to govern his execution from that of Maryland, which is where he was sentenced but has since abolished the death penalty, to that of Indiana, which still maintains the death penalty. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decided that these questions deserve oral argument and set up oral argument for January 27th. The government requested that the Supreme Court step in urgently, overturn the Fourth Circuit's order, and require that Higgs be killed. The Supreme Court did so, reversing the Fourth Circuit's stay of execution. Justice Breyer dissented from the highest court's decision, asking, quote, given the finality and severity of a death sentence, it is particularly important that judges consider and resolve challenges to an inmate's conviction and sentence. How just is a legal system that would execute an individual without consideration of a novel or significant legal question that he's raised, unquote. Last July, the federal government executed Daniel Lee, Lee's execution was the first federal execution after a 17-year hiatus of the federal death penalty. The government's execution of Dustin Higgs was its 13th in six months. All of the prisoners killed during President Trump's lame duck months had raised novel legal issues that lower courts attempted to give due process to address, but were undercut by the Supreme Court ordering the executions to go ahead. Higgs was convicted in the killings of three women in a wildlife refuge in 1996. Until his execution, he denied his role in their deaths. Higgs was not the person who actually shot the three women. In fact, Willis Haynes pulled the trigger and was sentenced to life in prison plus 45 years after a separate jury spared him the death penalty for the crime. Higgs's prosecutors wrongfully argued to the jury that Higgs forced Haynes to shoot, a claim which Haynes himself has denied. As of late November, the Michigan Department of Corrections had identified 115 prisoners diagnosed with COVID-19 once, who later tested positive for the virus again after 90 days. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention says it is possible, but rare, to get COVID-19 again 90 days after an initial infection. A subsequent positive test before the 90-day mark would likely be a lingering infection, sources say. The timeframes between the 115 prisoners' tests range from 91 days to 246 days, according to information provided by the Michigan Department of Corrections. Genomic sequencing is said to be the gold standard for confirming reinfection, but this process requires access to both positive samples, meaning labs contracted by the MDOC 
would need to save positive results for an indeterminate period of time, which has not been done for these cases. Dr. Adam Loring, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases, Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Michigan, stated that prisoners would be among the most likely settings to see reinfections because of the potential for re-exposure. Infectious disease experts say they would expect someone who becomes infected with COVID-19 for a second time to be asymptomatic, as was the case with the 115 prisoners, according to MDOC. The vast majority of reinfection cases are likely going unnoticed. Michigan prisoners are included in the initial phase of the state's plan for the vaccine rollout if they are 65 and older or have a pre-existing medical condition that puts them at high risk of a negative COVID-19 outcome, according to MDOC. The rest of the prisoner population will be offered the vaccine when it is made available to the general public. On January 13th, eight organizations signed on to a letter with the ACLU of Michigan, urging Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Michigan Department of Corrections Director Robert Gordon to prioritize prisoners just as you prioritize those living in other congregate living settings and correctional staff. The Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has doubled down on its policy not to always inform families of inmates who are sickened or killed by the coronavirus saying it's the responsibility of inmates to ensure their emergency contacts are complete and accurate. Nonprofit organizations and attorneys point to a waiver issued by the federal government in March that gave hospitals the discretion to release such information to family and friends during a public health emergency. But the department says that waiver doesn't apply to prisons. This waiver allows medical staff to release basic information location, status of the patient, and treatment as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. The same guidance was issued during Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Katrina. While some attorneys and nonprofit groups believe that guidance gives the department leeway to be more flexible, others say it's a stretch to lump prisons in with hospitals even if they have medical facilities. In a post to its website this month, the Pennsylvania DOC said it will only release information to a single person listed as an emergency contact, regardless of whether the person is a family member or next of kin, which is the typical process for authorities to notify a family of a death. For many inmates, their emergency contact information is as old as when they received it, which was the day that they were imprisoned. Families and prison rights groups say that the department is not doing enough to inform prisoners about the importance of updating their information. For the first time, California correctional officers will be required to use body cameras while interacting with inmates inside a state prison, a federal judge ordered Tuesday. The ruling comes in a civil rights lawsuit over disabled inmates' rights, in which a federal judge found evidence to support allegations of physical abuse of prisoners at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. The order applies to interactions with all inmates with disabilities inside the Ote Mesa facility. U.S. District Judge Claudia Wilkin gave the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation five months to get the body-worn devices into use. She also ordered that records from body cameras be preserved from use-of-force incidents. Wilkin also ordered 
the installation of widespread surveillance camera systems at critical areas of the prison, and the establishment of third-party expert monitor oversight of evidence gathered at the prison. The ruling Tuesday applies to the single prison, but the judge is expected to hear another motion next month that examines evidence of abuses across the state prison system and seeks to implement the use of body cameras across 35 prisons. The injunction Tuesday was granted based on 112 sworn declarations from inmates that lawyers said showed staff routinely use unnecessary and excessive force against people with disabilities, often resulting in broken bones, loss of consciousness, stitches, or injuries that require medical attention at outside hospitals. According to the court, nearly one-fourth of all uses of force on inmates at the prison between 2017 and 2019 involved disabled inmates, despite those inmates being the least capable of violent conduct. Former prison guard Ashley Marie Orich charged with helping to cover up the 2016 death of a California State Prison Sacramento inmate pleaded guilty Tuesday. A co-worker, Arthur Pacheco, was indicted by a federal grand jury at the same time on two counts of deprivation of rights under color of law and two counts of falsifying records in a federal investigation. Neither guard is currently in custody. Court records say the guards were escorting the inmate with his hands cuffed behind his back when Pacheco bent down and yanked his back legs out from under him. He suffered a broken jaw and teeth, was taken to a hospital, and died two days later. Three other guards were present at the time, and immediately after the incident, Pacheco and Orich filed reports intentionally concealing the presence of one of the three guards, court records say. They also falsely reported that the inmate spun to his left and lunged forward, breaking Pacheco's grip, court records say. Orich also was accused of reporting Pacheco had not used immediate force against the inmate. The indictment also accuses Pacheco of filing another false report on a May 19, 2016 incident during which he used his department-issued pepper spray canister to spray a second inmate in the face. Pacheco claimed he confronted the 54-year-old inmate holding a piece of glass, ordered him to drop it, and turned around to be handcuffed. The indictment says the inmate did not have a piece of glass and was cooperating when Pacheco ordered him to come closer and open his eyes, then sprayed him. Orich is scheduled to be sentenced April 12th and faces a statutory minimum of 20 years plus a $250,000 fine. Pacheco, who has pleaded not guilty, is next scheduled to appear for a court hearing on April 19th. Lovell Correctional Institution in Ocala, Florida is the oldest women's prison in the state and the largest in the nation. In January, the U.S. Department of Justice issued a report saying, quote, Lowell prisoners have suffered harm from sexual abuse and are at substantial risk of serious harm because existing systems discourage prisoners from reporting sexual abuse and fail to effectively detect and deter sexual abuse. The report also pointed to a history of cover-ups of the abuse. Because of the Department of Justice investigation, Florida lawmakers are calling for extensive reforms. Recently, they held a Zoom call with former Lowell inmates to discuss how to move forward. A group of women legislators want to enact legislation to ensure that the abuses don't continue. 
One prisoner, Lorette Philipson, reported, quote, I saw many women being removed from the dorm to go with officers to the secret spot, knowing sex was going to take place mostly in exchange for free world items. Philipson said the situation worsened when prisoners attempted to complain. The report says that the Department of Justice found the abuse went back to at least 2006 and that the Florida Department of Corrections was aware of it. According to the report, the Department of Corrections and Lowell Administration failed to take appropriate action to correct the systemic problems that have enabled corrections officers and other staff to continue sexually abusing Lowell prisoners. The report said the abuses violate prisoners' Eighth Amendment rights, which protect them from cruel and unusual punishment. The Department of Justice is threatening to sue if conditions don't improve within 49 days. On KiteLine this week, we share two interviews with advocates working on the physical well-being of those locked inside. The first conversation we hear is with Olivia, who is part of a group trying to get the word out about unsafe conditions at the California Medical Facility, or CMF, a prison for inmates with medical conditions. This facility has been overrun by the coronavirus as a result of carelessness by the administrators. Our second call is with Peter, who talks to us about his advocacy for a friend in the DuPage County Jail. His friend, Strawberry Hampton, who was recently featured on the show, suffered abuse at the hands of prison staff and wanted to report the violation via PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. However, reporting the PREA grievance was much less straightforward than one would expect it to be. And now, here's Olivia talking about the California Medical Facility. My name is Olivia Campbell. I am an advocate for the rights of the incarcerated. I would like to talk about the outbreak that is raging out of control at the California Medical Facility, which is a prison in Vacaville that holds many elderly and medically high-risk and disabled people. On December 11th, the prison had two active COVID cases, and uh, on the 12th, they went under lockdown and everybody knew something was really wrong. Within five days, the number was at 58 cases, and it just deteriorated so quickly from there. The highest number, the peak of the outbreak, I believe there were 463 active cases. In all, since December 12th, there have been 520 people infected, and seven have died. In the last couple of days, we have seen finally some decreases in numbers, but for the most part, it's been increases. In fact, for, I believe, the first 25 days of the outbreak, it was all increases. There was not a single drop, and they were they were rising by as much as 20, 30, 50, 60 a day, and it just, just spiraled out of control really, really quickly. They're quarantining people who have tested positive. Before it was used as a quarantine dorm, it was used as housing for the dogs in the Paws for Life training program. The dogs were removed around the start of the pandemic, and if I'm not mistaken, they, they went home with correctional officers. The dorm was not cleaned before being used to quarantine sick people. So sick people are living in absolutely deplorable conditions, and the few who are well enough even to clean are not being given adequate cleaning supplies for the past. They are also not having their laundry picked up 
They don't have access to clean clothes. The strain of COVID that's, that's moving through CMS is causing severe diarrhea and uh, people are soiling themselves and they don't have access to clean clothes. They also don't have enough toilet paper. They're being given, each being given one roll of toilet paper per week, which when you're dealing with something like this is not nearly enough. So yeah, conditions on top of just the layout of the prison not being equipped for social distancing, the, the conditions in the quarantine dorm are just absolutely appalling. People are being moved around in an attempt to quell the outbreak. They're moving them around. There's been some mixing of positive and, and negative people. Not everyone gets quarantined exactly when they should. And there are correctional officers who are refusing to wear masks. There are some who are refusing to wear masks properly. There are some that are not wearing gloves. There are some that are moving in between positive and negative units. Just socializing, socializing with other correctional officers, exposing people. There is a dorm that holds 21 people who use wheelchairs, and there aren't enough wheelchair-accessible single cells at CMF to accommodate the quarantining of all of those people and the virus. It, it spread through that dorm, and yeah, it's it's a mess. So, how are you? Do you, if you feel comfortable, it's okay if not. If you want to speak at all about how you coordinate with people on the inside in order to get this information and stay in touch with people, I know. Maybe you also want to speak to how difficult it has become for access to phones? Yeah, that is a huge problem. We have a, a small network. Like I said, we're, we're a really small team anyway, and we have a smaller network of people inside. But all of our information does come from them. And, um, yeah, it's been harder harder for all people inside to communicate because uh, phone access has been so restricted since the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, I believe just in one wing, Back in the middle of December, they suspended phone use entirely. They were claiming that the phones were the reason that the outbreak was happening and that the virus was spreading. And quite apart from being completely untrue, that had the effect of further restricting people from their loved ones who are just as terrified as they are. And so that was a blow to everyone's mental health. And finally, the captain who tried to do that was told that that uh, that he couldn't do that and the restrictions were modified but still people just they don't have they don't have a lot of access to phones there are people uh, at CMS who are deaf and hard of hearing and they have specially equipped phones that they use and it's my understanding that there is even less access for them like little to no access for them to be able to call their loved ones at all we have been reaching out to the media a lot, and we have contacted the Office of the Inspector General, and we have a few other authorities on our list that we're going to be contacting, and we're just trying to get the word around because I don't think a lot of people realize that this is happening. I think a lot of people are under the impression that CMF is immune to a lot of this type of egregious behavior, and they're not. And so mainly right now, we're just trying to get the word out. But yes, we, we are going to hold them accountable. Like I said, we've been in touch with the OIG. There's been some talk about getting lawyers involved. So yeah, we're, we're going to do absolutely everything we can. As if the deplorable conditions of the quarantine norm are not enough, the other really, really despicable thing that I want people to be aware of is that 
this is a prison hospital. This this is a medical a medical facility, and the medical staff there are ignoring calls for help. In D dorm around Christmas time, a couple days before Christmas, I think there was a man that fainted in the bathroom. People tried to get nurses in to help him, and no one would come. So a few of the people who were also quarantined, who were ill themselves, um, got him into his bed before finally he was taken to an outside hospital. Um, A similar incident happened, I guess, about a week and a half later. There was a, a man that passed out in the bathroom, and it was hours before anyone came. They called for nurses for hours, and no one came to help him. And finally, they took him out on a stretcher. There's been a lot of theorizing that uh, the reason for this is they are worried about what it will look like if they send people to hospitals um, with regard to the Plata versus Newsom litigation, which is the ongoing lawsuit about substandard health care in California prisons. Correctional officers are actually telling them to call ambulances, and the nurses are ignoring them. They would rather refuse to get people the help they need than make it look like they can't care for them at the prison. And I would be very surprised if that negligence and deliberate refusal was not responsible for every single of those of, of those seven deaths that have happened. And these this, these are medical professionals. This is a medical prison. And I I don't even have words for the level of, of cruelty that it that it takes to just completely ignore elderly, sick, and disabled people because that's that's what a lot of the population there is. People over sixty, people who have underlying health issues, people who are disabled, they have really high COVID risk scores. They're just being ignored and left to their fate particularly people who have disabilities, are supposed to be given assistance from ADA workers who are other incarcerated people who have this as their work assignment. Like they help they help people with disabilities with daily living tasks and um, I guess just anything they need. And they're all sick and no kind of alternative accommodations have been offered. And so people just don't have help, which is legal. Um, people are, are required to be accommodated under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they're, they're not being accommodated. They have no help. So nurses, in addition to not responding to calls for help, um, when they go into the dorm to check people's vitals, they just stand in the middle of the dorm and yell out for people to come get their vitals taken. So people who are too ill to get up are being missed completely. They're they're just expecting people who are sick and bedridden to line up in the middle of the dorm to get their vitals taken. Uh, They're not going bed to bed. So uh, the people who are the sickest are getting the least amount of help. And now, here's Peter, who explains the circumstances in which he tried to assist a friend in reporting a violation through Priya. My name is Peter Fritsch. Um, I'm a friend of Strawberry Hampton and also a member of the prison abolition group Black and Pink. 
and I've known Strawberry for, um, at this point, about seven months. So Strawberry has been in SEG for, at this point, several months now, with small bits of time where she is not, but then she always gets put back there on a number of tickets that they give her. And what happened was that last week, she was in her cell and was having a mental health crisis. And she asked the uh, deputy who was there to call the psychiatrist, and he would not. She tried to cover her cell door with a blanket, because when that happens, um, that, that triggers either them calling a psychiatrist or it's some sort of response that they have to do. This officer um, reached in her cell, pulled out her blanket, and then a little bit later, she was naked and the officer tried to go into her cell. She said, don't come in, I'm naked. And he ended up reaching into her cell and grabbing her leg. At that point, Strawberry dissociated and basically collapsed on the floor. And all of the other men in SEG started screaming. And then the deputy ended up pulling his arm out. And she filed a grievance about it. They dismissed her grievance and ended up saying that she had assaulted him when he had put his arm into the cell for some justifiable reason. Um, and they ended up giving her extra time in SEG uh, for that ticket. From that experience, and then also from a month or two ago when another inmate tried to sexually assault her in the law library of the DuPage County Jail, she had been trying to call the PREA hotline, the Prison Rape Elimination Act hotline, to report that. And then after this happened with this officer, she tried to call the hotline again. She ended up realizing last week that the number she had been given on a PREA pamphlet was for the YWCA's Chicago Rape Crisis Hotline um, for crisis intervention services, but not to report sexual abuse in jail. She called me. I looked online at the DuPage County Sheriff's website, and they do have information about um, how to report institutional sexual abuse and or staff sexual misconduct. On this website, I'm reading it right now, it says, if you have information regarding an inmate who has been sexually abused or sexually assaulted while in the custody of the DuPage County Sheriff's Office, please contact the Sheriff's Office at 630-402-2400 or the Anonymous Crime Tips ACT on the Sheriff's Office website. I called that number and when they picked up, they said that number was in fact not the PREA hotline. When I told them that it was on the website, they said, well, it shouldn't be, that's a mistake. Um, you need to talk to the jail about that. They transferred me to the jail. And then when I tried to file a PREA complaint there, they said that they only take PREA complaints Monday to Friday, nine to five, like during working hours. And then Truly right after that happened, the guards went over to Strawberry and said that she needed to get off the phone right away, making it pretty apparent to me and her that whatever number I called, they ended up reaching out to the deputy who was around her. She and I thought it was strange that the place to report sexual 
abuse and sexual assault would be the place that had been enacting the sexual abuse and the sexual assault. My understanding is that that is not legal according to the Prison Rape Elimination Act, PREA, but that's at least what the DuPage County Jail clearly is doing. This has been KiteLine. We have a new website, kitelineradio.org, where you can search for and access all 235 episodes of the show, including the two episodes we did on PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Again, you can check it out at kitelineradio.org. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Kite Line is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. Kite Line, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.